Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And I, I'd like to repeat something that I've said more than once, and that is we don't judge women who've had abortions. We're not mad at them or angry with them. We have great sympathy and compassion for them because they've been uh, hoodwinked, deceived by this secular world that we live in. The Bible says Satan is the prince of this world and uh, his full-time job is deceiving people. And even among those who are strong advocates of abortion, even up to third trimester and so forth, they are people who have been deceived. And so we need to show compassion and understanding, but at the same time, stand firm on the principle of pro-life. Uh, Pat said she believes this is a pro-life church. I don't see how any true church of God could be anything else. God is pro-life. He gave us life. He is the author of life. And he's also the one who loved us so much that when he saw the human race destined for destruction, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross that we might live. That's pretty pro-life, wouldn't you say? Okay, 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at the first three verses. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. And so, today Peter gives us the big but here. But there were also false prophets. Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up this time in your word. We ask that you'd bless it, anoint it, that you would speak to our hearts, touch our hearts and our minds with your truth, and just continue that ongoing process of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the last part of chapter 1, Peter talked to us about the message brought by the Old Testament prophets and then was confirmed by the coming of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection, the ministry of Jesus here on the earth, the true prophets of God who paved the way for the coming of Christ. You remember the message of John the Baptist, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's considered to be basically the last of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist bridged the gap between the old and the new. But now Peter takes us to the next point with a but. But there were also false prophets among the people. At the same time, and this is not a new phenomenon, at the same time God's messengers, the prophets, were bringing God's word to the people, there were false prophets bringing a deceptive message, not of God. And in fact, ultimately, the downfall of both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel was due in large part to people embracing the message of the false prophets 
and rejecting the true prophets. Most of the Old Testament prophets were martyred, killed, their message rejected. Hebrews 1.1, I think we may have read this last week, but God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you. It's been said that history repeats itself. That seems to be true in the secular world as well as in the spiritual world. Since the dawn of creation, Satan has been trying to counteract and countermand God's truth with his lies. We know about this. Genesis 3, 1 through 4. Now the serpent, who is Satan, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, we know this wasn't your ordinary garden variety serpent because he's speaking. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What did he do? He questioned the word of God, the truth of God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, actually now Eve has also twisted the word of God. Because God never said you can't touch it. See, but what happens when we start listening to the lies of the enemy, even the truth that we already know becomes distorted. She added her own little twist. And then Satan comes back. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. What is he saying? God is a liar. How many people down through human history have made that same accusation that God is a liar when in fact the Bible says let God be true and every man a liar? And that is true. Every man is a liar in one way or another and God is absolutely true. Notice something else. Peter says there will be false teachers among you. Not there might be, there could be, there will be. Take it to the bank. He's warning his readers, and that includes the first century readers, believers of every generation, even up to our generation now as we're studying this together here today. This warning is still current and appropriate and worthy of our taking heed to it. Jesus in Matthew 7:15 said beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And that's why it's so important that we tap into the discernment that God has given us in the first epistle of John. He says that we have an anointing from the Holy One that we're able to discern truth from deception. But so often, we don't tap into that discernment and we make judgments based upon feelings, emotions, someone's appearance, so many things that can be deceptive. Eve was deceived by the serpent. We need to tap into that discernment that God has given us 
it would appear that some in the body of Christ have a gift of discernment, a super sensitivity to those things, but every believer has the Holy Spirit living in them, and therefore every one of us has a degree of discernment. But how often do we really use it? And how often when we do get what we call a check in our spirit, how many of you have ever used that term? Kind of got a check in my spirit here. I've been using it for years, my wife and I. Something's not right. But oftentimes we'll pass it off, we'll ignore it. Oh, that's just silly. That's just me. That's my own personal issues. When actually it's the Holy Spirit trying to warn you. And so many times, unfortunately, we ignore it. We make a choice to ignore it. Just like Eve chose to ignore the Word of God and give in to the lies of Satan. Matthew 24, 11. Then, and Jesus here, of course, Matthew 24 is one of the classic passages on the last days, the end times, those, the tribulation period, seven years of tribulation on the earth, followed by the return of Christ and the establishing of His millennial kingdom here on the earth. In that context, Jesus warns, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And it's going back quite a while now that Chuck Missler, maybe as much as 20 years ago, the late great Chuck Missler, who recently went to be with the Lord, said that we're now living in the age of deception. And deception definitely seems to be the order of the day. And Jesus said that that would be the number one sign that we're in the last days when deception goes global. There will be many false prophets and rise up and deceive many. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, For the time will come. So when Paul wrote this to Timothy, obviously the time had not come yet. But Paul says it's coming. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who would they be? They who profess to be believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of God, the Savior of the world. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In Acts chapter 4, we're told about the apostles' doctrine, which is built upon the Old Testament and then the New Testament revelation which came to these men by the Spirit of God. The apostles' doctrine and James talks about the fact the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When you build a house on a firm foundation, then all is well. And when the foundation is firm and solid, you don't go back at a later date and say, well, you know, this is a new era now. We need to tear out this foundation and come up with a new one. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? In fact, if you tried to do that, the whole house would probably fall down. So we have a firm foundation. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament writers, the apostles' doctrine. But Paul warned Timothy, and again, in so doing, that warning has now been carried forward to us 2,000 years later. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. 
Would you agree with me that we're now living in a day and age when most people are propelled forward by their own desires more than anything else? What about my needs? I'm triggered. I need a safe space. Everything is me, 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 I, 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 right? And if I have to take away every freedom that you possess in order to make myself feel good, I'm going to do it. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Man-made doctrines, man-made teachings that do not line up with the truth of God's Word. I could spend the rest of the morning just listing off all the crazy stuff I've heard over the years coming out of various people in various segments of the so-called church. And that's not even to mention those that are promoting entirely different false belief systems. We know there are many in the world, and there seem to be new ones every day. Again, tying in with what Peter's telling us here, there will be false teachers among you. You can count on it. Acts 20, 28, Paul gathers for the last time with the Ephesian elders. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. These men were the elders, the overseers of the flock of God. They were the shepherds, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, Paul says, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And see, the thing is, sheep are very naive, right? Very trusting. We could probably even make the case that they're kind of dumb. But then again, as believers, it is a good Christian quality to give people the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I think it's in the book of Romans, we're told that we're to owe no man the debt, any other debt except to love them. We, are, we have an obligation to one another to love each other. And so, but that sometimes puts us in this position of vulnerability, naivety, gullibility. And that's where that, that discernment that I spoke of earlier comes in. Because and Jesus even told his disciples when he sent them out to be as wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves, right? I'm going to go back to one of our great presidents, Ronald Reagan, who said, trust, but verify. That, and that's really a good spiritual principle. We shouldn't negatively judge someone the first time we meet them. Maybe we don't like their looks or their personality or what have you. But then as I mentioned earlier, oftentimes the ones who seem to be the most desirable, the most comely, the most charismatic, the kind of person that you want to be friends with, maybe you want to be like them. Well, we saw what happened with Eve and the serpent. So we need both. We need to be Loving, trusting, but verify. We need the discernment of the Holy Spirit 
And many times the lack thereof is what gets us into trouble. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now understand this. Wolves don't know they're wolves necessarily. It, it's just a natural beast instinct. Wolves do what wolves do. But nonetheless, they're dangerous. Not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. There's such a good point here that Paul makes, and I've witnessed it many times throughout the years. The good shepherd, whether it be Jesus or one of his under shepherds, that's what pastors are, that's what elders are, they are under shepherds, they're under the good shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, but any good shepherd is going to draw people to Jesus. The bad shepherd draws people to himself or herself, because although we don't ordain women in the Calvary Chapel movement, Women do lead women's Bible studies and take on other leadership roles in the church. So in some cases, in some regards, they can be considered as shepherds as well. The good shepherd draws people to Jesus. The bad shepherd draws people to himself or herself. And sadly, that happens in the church. There are people that have a need to be needed. They want people to need them, to look to them. It's and this is what happens. They rise up, as Paul said, because of personality, because of gifting and so forth. But ultimately, rather than building up the body of Christ, it's damaged. Again, as I pointed out earlier, these warnings from Jesus and Peter... Paul, the other New Testament writers, do not suggest the possibility of false teachers and false prophets. They guarantee that this will happen. He says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. No wolf ever comes into the flock openly and says, Hi, everybody, I'm a wolf. How are you? I'm here to deceive you. I'm here to mislead you. I'm here to lead you astray. I'm here to devour you. And again, it's, there's no justification for that type of activity. But being that a wolf is a wolf and a wolf does what a wolf does, and this is actually what makes them even more effective and more convincing. And again, I could draw the parallel with some of the things we talked about earlier with the pro-life movement versus the right the, you know, the what pro-choice movement, the abortion movement, is that many of those people honestly believe that they are right. That makes them even more dangerous. And it makes wolves even more dangerous within the context of the church because they're even more convincing because, first of all, they're convinced. The wolf is convinced that he has every right to eat that sheep, right? He's a wolf. That's what wolves do. 
And so that's what amplifies and magnifies the danger and why it's so important that we do tap into the discernment that we have. And again, a lot of times we're at fault as much as the wolf. And I've seen this over and over again also where someone comes up and they begin to speak negatively about the pastor, in this case me, if it's any other church, whoever the pastor is, the leadership and so forth, or they begin to openly disagree with some of the teaching. Now, if you have a disagreement, you can come and talk to me. We can discuss it. But if you go out and begin to discuss it with other people, then you're sowing discord in the church. Uh, you're, you're sowing seeds of division. And what happens so often is that when people do that, the sheep don't stand up and say, wait a minute, this isn't right. If you have an issue with the pastor, if you have an issue with Pastor Gary, Pastor Dave, Pastor uh, Ed, Pastor Carl, whoever it might be, let's go talk to them together right now. Or if, I mean, you know, sometimes that's not even required because it's very obvious that what they're saying is wrong and there's nothing wrong and lovingly tell them, I'm sorry, but that's really inappropriate. I don't want to hear that. But most of the time people don't do that. So then that gives the wolf a little more ammunition, a little more fuel to continue. And it's a gradual process. It doesn't just happen overnight. We have the opportunity and the ability to shut those things down from their outset, if we will do it. But oftentimes we're too afraid of offending people, too afraid of people not liking us. But we do have a responsibility as the body of Christ to take a stand against that which is wrong. And again, the point that all of our New Testament writers are making is that these things happen from within the church. Verse 30 of Acts 20, we just read a moment ago, from among yourselves men will rise up. Attack from outside always makes the church stronger. Have you noticed that? Persecution from outside the church brings us together, puts us on our knees, makes us stronger. We've all heard tremendous stories of the persecuted church from China, from Eastern Europe, other parts of the world, and just the strength. Maybe not the numbers, but definitely the strength when the church is persecuted from outside. And it began the moment Jesus rose up into heaven. The persecution began. And we know that all the apostles except John were martyred. And they died rather than denounce their Lord and Savior. But what does tear the church down is persecution or deception or division from within. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it's sad that we've seen so many churches that have fallen by the wayside that have closed their doors because of this strife from within. And really, there's no excuse for it because we've been warned about it in the Word of God. These wolves very subtly work their way into the flock. And by the way, in case any of you guys think that I'm trying to send some signal here or some secret message that something's going on, <laughs> you may have noticed this is the passage that just happened to come next in Second Peter, right? I didn't choose this passage, it chose me. 
All right? So just in case you're thinking that. I mean, it's a subject I love to talk about, believe me. But this is just what happened to come this Sunday. So don't think there's any secret agenda here because there isn't. These wolves, and again, a wolf is a wolf by nature. So they're not going around necessarily thinking, I'm a wolf. All right. Looking for some red meat. They just do what they do because they're not, maybe they're not born again. That would be the first big question to ask because Jesus said not all those who cry Lord, Lord will be saved. You can learn Christianese pretty easily. Just hang around a church for a while. Listen to what people say. Praise God. Hallelujah. Bless you, man. You can learn the language real quick and real easy. But Jesus said by their fruit you will know them. But they subtly work their way into the flock. There's so many reasons why people do this. Some people do it because they're looking for a significant other. And they think a church is a good place to find someone, but they realize if they're going to find someone, they're going to have to learn to speak the language. Other people do it to promote their businesses. Christians, in many cases, tend, especially in America, tend to be pretty successful because they follow God, they follow biblical principles, and God blesses them. And so that's a good place to go to promote your business because people tend to have maybe more money. I don't know, but not necessarily this church. <laughs> We're kind of a real blue-collar church here. They suddenly work their way into the flock and begin to undermine the sound doctrine being brought to the congregation by the pastor, assuming that you are in a church that is teaching sound doctrine, and not all churches are. But just given that assumption then the goal of the wolf is to come in, work their way into the flock, get to know people, make friends, and then begin to undermine the sound doctrine that's being taught by the pastors and leaders of the church. Noah Webster gives us a definition of heresy, a fundamental error in religion or an error of opinion respecting some fundamental doctrine of religion. The scriptures being the standard of faith any opinion that is repugnant to its doctrines is heresy. So you'll see these false teachers often seeking a position as a home group leader, Bible study leader, prayer group leader, something like that. We don't have any of those wolves leading our groups, to the best of my knowledge. And I've known most of them a really long time. But that gives them a degree of credibility and endorsement by the leadership of the church you know, this person must be right. Otherwise, why would the leadership of the church put them in this position? So they must be right. They have credibility. They have validity. And that's why Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, don't raise up a novice or a new believer, somebody who's new in the Lord, inexperienced. Don't raise them up because you're setting them up for failure, that they would fall under the condemnation of the devil which was that pride that I will be like the Most High. You know, I can do it better than God can. I want to be God. I can do it better than the pastor can. I want to be the pastor. Which is really silly because if you really knew everything involved in being the pastor, you wouldn't want to be the pastor. I love it. I praise God for His calling on my life and the opportunities and blessings He's given me. But it's, it's no walk in the park 
people look at the public persona, you know, and they think, well, that's, that's the ultimate man. I'd sure like to do that. Having no idea what really is involved in the spiritual warfare that takes place. I'm not griping or complaining. I'm just saying. I love it. So, and then Peter says, they'll secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. And you might wonder what that means, but really teaching anything other than salvation by grace through faith. And there are many churches that promote a salvation by works mentality. That even though Jesus died on the cross, paid the price for your sins, if you don't do all the right things, you still might go to hell. Oh, they teach that the blood of Christ was not and is not sufficient to wipe away each and every sin. Back in the 1800s, now the Mormon church is a cult anyway. I mean, let's just be honest. They've tried to present themselves in the 21st century as just another branch of Christianity, but they are a cult. They are not true Christians, biblical Christians. I'm sorry, I'm anybody watching, probably offending people right now, but I have this tendency to speak the truth. There are many other cults. Mormonism is not the only cult, but it's a big one. And back in the 1800s, among many of the other false doctrines that they were teaching, and still teach if you really dig into it, they had a doctrine called blood vengeance, I believe was the term that they used. And the teaching was that there are some sins that even the blood of Christ cannot atone for, and they had these vigilante groups, posses, who would go out and kill people that they deemed worthy of death, and they claimed they were doing it to redeem their souls. Does that sound anywhere near any biblical doctrine you've ever heard? So that's an example. One of just scores. Any opinion that is repugnant to the doctrines of the scriptures is heresy. And so again, when we talk about even denying the Lord who bought them, this doesn't necessarily mean that they're outright denying Jesus. Oh, I don't believe in Jesus. He's not the Son of God. That could be part of it. But by subtly altering and changing his message. In fact, there's even a, a so-called Bible translation, I think more of a paraphrase, called what? The Message. Right? And that book, that translation, or whatever you want to call it, does alter God's message. Interesting that they would call it the message when it's really altering the message. But denying the Lord who bought them can mean doing just that. Altering, changing God's message, misrepresenting who He really is. Come on, man. You know, I'm as Christian as the next guy. But you don't really believe that Jesus never sinned, do you? And in fact, there was a survey a few years ago, I've shared this before, where about 38% of so-called Christians do believe that Jesus sinned. That's a third of the church, or a little over one-third of the church, that believes Jesus sinned. Now, how could He be our Savior if He sinned? He can't. Either He's the perfect, sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, 
Or if he sinned too, then he's disqualified from being our Savior. But we hear these kinds of things. Pretty scary that one-third of the so-called church believes that Jesus sinned. That's a big problem. You don't actually believe in a literal resurrection, do you? Give me a break. Now, yeah, you know, Jesus has risen in our hearts and, you know, his memory will live with us forever. But you don't really believe in a literal resurrection, do you? You see how there are many ways that someone can deny the Lord who bought them. You don't really believe in a literal second coming, do you? Are you kidding me? Now, you don't actually believe that God expects you to abstain from relations with your boyfriend or girlfriend, do you? That was a cultural thing back then. God is very progressive, you know. <laughs> God realizes that in the 21st century, people just aren't capable of keeping their hands off of each other. <laughs> it sounds silly, I know, but really these are the kind of ideas that are floated around all the time. And all of those can be connected to this idea of denying the Lord who bought them. It goes on and on and on. Again, 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul writing to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And that doesn't mean Satanism, witchcraft. Certainly that can be part of it. And all the reports are that these things are on the rise. Even more so than Christianity in many places. Satanism, the occult, witchcraft... In fact, I read an article recently where it's, they now have atheist churches. Did you know that? No, I'm serious. Because they want the camaraderie, the fellowship, the socialization that comes from being a part of a church. You meet people, you make friends, you drink coffee, eat a donut or two. And they sing. I don't know what they sing. But there are, and in fact, the article I read said that the atheist churches are growing while the Christian churches are declining. I mean, you know what? For somebody who doesn't want to believe in God, who doesn't want to submit to God, even though they, in their heart of hearts they know He's real, but they don't want Him to be in charge of their lives. They want to run the show. It's the best of both worlds. They can have church just like you and I, but they don't have to submit their lives to God. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. Doctrines of demons. Any doctrine that's not of God, any doctrine that's not part of God's word and God's truth handed down by the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, any false teaching, any false cultish group, that's all part of the category Paul refers to as doctrines of demons. Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And many of these folks who start these cult groups and lead these cult groups give reports of having encounter with some kind of supernatural being, an angel or something who brought them this message. Those are deceiving spirits. Paul said, even if an angel from heaven brings to you any other gospel than that which we have already preached, let him be accursed. Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy... 
having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, when you, in fact, especially in olden days, if you're out in the wilderness, you're out on the range, home, home on the range, and you get a, some kind of a gash or a cut or something, it would take a hot poker and cauterize it and seal the wound. When your conscience is seared as with a hot iron, you don't have a conscience anymore. And so if you've ever asked yourself, how do these people come up with this stuff? How do they spin these ridiculous tales, false doctrines, false teachings? In many cases, their consciences have been seared. Just like with the wolf who doesn't know he's a wolf, he's just doing what a wolf does. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving, these legalistic man-made doctrines by those who believe and know the truth. And so next Peter tells us the outcome of these activities by these false teachers and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now here's where it gets a little tricky. Okay? This is really important. I want you to listen to the rest of this message. Because I'm sure many of us here today have been in this place. Regardless of how blessed and how prosperous and how popular they may appear to be here and now, they will, in God's perfect timing, be judged harshly by the one who is the truth. Whatever temporary recognition, adoration, financial gain one might get from being a false teacher, it won't be worth the eternal punishment one will receive. And you say, they bring on themselves swift destruction. I've watched some of these folks, and they just go on and on for years and years, and God never seems to do anything. And that's, again, why some people think, wow, these people are really anointed. They are really spiritual. Boy, God is really with them. I want to remind you of something. Satan took Jesus up onto the highest pinnacle of the temple at the beginning of... Uh, Matthew chapter 4, remember? And he tempted him, he tested him three times. One of those temptations was, if you will bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Now, that could not possibly have been a temptation of any kind unless Satan had the ability to deliver. Satan's the prince of this world. He is ultimately under God's authority, but God has given him a great deal of latitude. And many times, when you see people that rise up from the masses and they are worshipped and they are adored by millions of people and they become very wealthy and very popular, you think that's God doing that? Unless they're a believer and they're giving God all the glory... I don't ever remember Michael Jackson doing that or Elvis Presley doing that or the Beatles doing that you know, or any of these folks. I'm, just, I'm a musician, so I tend to think of those. But whether it's the political world, the economic world, Bill Gates, you know, um, Steve Jobs, I, I don't remember any of these guys ever getting up and praising God for their prosperity, do you? But they're worshipped like God's. Where do you think they got all that success from? 
all that worship, all that adoration, all that wealth. In fact, we've heard stories of people selling their souls to the devil for fame and fortune, for success. And it might not even be that they would literally say, Satan, if you make me the number one rock star in the nation, I'll worship you. But it could be just this determined in their hearts and their minds, I'll do whatever it takes. Some cases, like Katy Perry, we know she renounced her Christian faith. She even made the comment that she sold her soul to the devil. And it worked. But when it comes time to stand before God, I wouldn't want to be Katy Perry. And many other people who've done the same thing. But we gullible, naive Christians, we look at someone and we see that they're rich, they're popular, they're good looking, and doggone it, people like them. And we think, wow, I want to be like them. They must be great. Big mistake. And then you might be thinking, well, I get what you're saying, Pastor. I get what Peter's saying here, but really, should we really be that worried? No one's ever going to fall for that malarkey. Really? Well, according to Peter, and Peter happens to be right, because God is speaking through Peter. Verse 2, many will follow their destructive ways. We'll pick that up next week. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are so awesome, so gracious, so wonderful to give your people fair warning. Father, we ask your forgiveness for the times when we don't really listen like we should. We don't exercise our discernment like we should. And yet it's obvious as we look at the passages that we've looked at today not only by Peter but by Jesus by Paul that a great concern amongst the founders of our faith first and foremost Jesus himself but also the other apostles the other New Testament writers they had a great concern about false teachers false prophets deception and again, as we looked at today, it goes all the way back to the beginning of time. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan has been seeking to deceive the human race from the beginning of time. But we thank you that even as the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, we have an unction, we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And that is that anointing and unction of discernment that we should be able to tell when somebody's lying when somebody's telling the truth. Father, forgive us for not always tapping into that discernment like we should. We ask you to help us to get better at that. Lord, we don't want to become cynical. We don't want to become skeptical. We don't want to become judgmental. But we do want to be able to exercise discernment, insight, and wisdom. And Lord, you've promised all these things to us as spirit-filled, born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask you to help us on a daily basis to access that wisdom, that insight, that understanding that's available to us through your Holy Spirit. We know that it's also enhanced as we take time to spend time in your word and receive that insight and wisdom that comes through the study of your holy scriptures. Father, we thank you. We praise you for this time together this morning. Pray that as we offer opportunity now for ministry that anyone who needs prayer for any reason would come forward whether it's to receive Christ make a new commitment to Christ 
Whatever it might be, we ask you just to pour out your Holy Spirit in these closing moments. In Jesus' name, amen.